This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. The Dilapidations Protocol was first published by the Property Litigation Association 20 years ago and has recently celebrated the 10th anniversary of its formal adoption under the civil procedure rules. It was introduced to try to prevent landlords exaggerating claims and to lead the way for early settlements without involvement of the courts. 20 years on, has it achieved those aims and how does it work in practical terms? I'm joined today to discuss these points by two surveyors who have a wealth of experience when it comes to dilapidations claims. Firstly, Sarah Lewis, Head of Dilapidations at Savills, and also by Richard Grove, Head of Commercial and Private Residential Building Surveying at Corford Seaton. So let's start with timings. The protocol was the first guidance parties had as to how quickly they should engage each other in terminal dilapidations claims. It suggests that terminal schedules should be served within 56 days after the expiry of a tenancy and that the tenant should respond within 56 days after that. So, Sarah, is it generally your experience that parties look to comply with those timetables? And do you think 56 days is about right as a reasonable time frame? I think it's really difficult. Look, 56 days is an eight week period. On more straightforward claims, I think you've probably got time to do everything you need to do. However, it also depends on when the schedule is served. So does that 56 day period start at least termination? or when you get the quantified demand, which is, which is when I believe the protocol says the 56 days commences. The issue really is, look, there's a lot to do. You get the schedule. Um, if it's before lease end, there's a number of things which may need more investigation. Uh, services haven't been validated yet because the tenant is still in occupation, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot more information which is required at lease end. Um, if it is, if you do get it after lease end, then you've still got to get your appointments if you haven't been appointed. You've also got to get the consultants on board. Then you do your inspection. Then you've got to review everything while you're on site. And then you've got to write up your report to get it back to the landlord. So eight weeks can go pretty quickly. So I think for complex projects or even medium-sized projects, it's it's tight. That's really interesting. I thought you just went round and went disrepair, disrepair. <laughs> Bit, bit more complex than that then, yeah? <laughs> Definitely. And Richard, I'm interested in what you think about those timeframes. And also we've got this suggestion about parties, uh, surveyors meeting within 28 days um, after the tenant responds to the landlord's claim. But let's let's talk about the timetables actually on the schedule first. What, what do you think about the 56 days? Yeah, no, I, I would agree in terms of the 56 uh, days. I think in most cases it is sufficient time to prepare a schedule and to get it priced, quantified, uh, and get it uh, ready for, for service. I think where there are larger cases or more complex cases, which require specialist reports, particularly on mechanical, electrical, and, and lifts, may take a little while to get those organized and to get those fully prepared in the right format for service. I've also had another case recently where we had to get uh, specialist asbestos inspections undertaken and very considerable asbestos debris was found. You've then got to get that price by a specialist and make sure those costs are reasonable. So on the much larger claims, it is becoming quite, that is becoming quite a tight timeline to actually um, produce the whole schedule in detail and to the right level within the 56 days. 
yeah okay that's interesting and what about the the parties meeting that then is supposed to take place once the schedule has been served and responded to I mean presumably that's usually a call rather than a meeting is that the next step or does there tend to be a bit more toing and froing in reality on the schedule first um how does that usually work I personally would strongly prefer a meeting because there's nothing like going to site actually seeing what you're being asked to consider face to face looking in the whites of the eyes of your opposite number and really trying to see where they're coming from and I think you can make much more progress um, that way it's all too easy to hide behind emails and actually not make any progress at all and I'd imagine you agree with that do you Sarah I certainly agree with it. Look, there's nothing uh, more productive than meeting on site. One of the things acting for the tenants that you can sometimes find when you're on site with your consultancy team going through schedules is that you don't, you can't find those breaches. So the landlord has put it in the schedule, but you can't actually locate them. And, it's, and then there's nothing more beneficial than meeting them 28 days or even sooner after you've sent your response back and they can see, can you show me where this is on site? And then you can meet on site and you can find it. And in some instances, you know, it's it's incorrect or it's correct. And there's you can then quantify, you know, eight tiles rather than seven tiles. And it's much more productive. It keeps things going, moving forward all the time. It's also very useful if you're acting for the um, uh, tenants um, uh, on the tenant side that you can actually see what is the landlord doing? Is he actually doing anything with the building? Is he just lying empty? Particularly if there's claims for loss of rent and other heads of claims, you can actually see what is happening on the ground. Yes, that's a really good point. I mean, I mean, I think, I think that's the thing about property, isn't it? It's one of the things I've always loved about dealing with property is you can see it, you know, and, and you can actually look at it and, as you say, inspect it together and, and discuss things on the ground and they actually make sense in a way that over email, you know, is never quite the same, is it? I think there's a lot more as well. I think Richard's right. There's a lot more when you meet on site. Um, you get to meet the other person and you, you get a bit a better understanding of of what's happening to the building and certainly what and there's a bit more it's a without prejudice meeting but there's a bit more open discussion about what's likely to happen um to communal areas um etc etc yeah and that brings us on nicely actually because one of the major changes brought in by the protocol was the concept of these endorsements on the schedule in particular the endorsement required uh, where the landlord serves a schedule to confirm that the contents of that schedule take account of the landlord's intentions for the property. Now, I have seen the occasional schedule still served without a signed endorsement, but it is fairly rare, I think. Um, would you agree with that? And do you think the endorsement has had a positive effect on how landlords, surveyors prepare their schedules? Yeah, no, I very much agree that the endorsement is, is appropriate. I think there are still a lot of endorsements going out where the surveyor hasn't necessarily really asked the, uh, his client what he's uh, in intending to do. Um, and it's all too easy for the surveyor in a bit of a rush to get out the door just to add his signature and say, yeah, I know what the, um, my client's intentions are. So uh, yes, really good. Uh, and I think it should be enforced because it just makes people go back to their client and say, right what are your actual intentions for this and presumably that's required really if you're doing a proper job i mean you have got to ask that question haven't you as a surveyor sarah 
Yeah, and it's one of the first questions we ask when we receive a schedule is what is the landlord's intentions for the property, uh, along with various other questions. Um, I think, look, the endorsement and the impact on the schedule can be very far apart and is only as good as the information that the surveyor has received from his client. Um, I'm sure there are many surveyors who ask their client as landlords what they're going to do with the property and are either not told the truth or not told anything and then they have to make it up themselves. I, I don't necessarily think that, they, that they're not then relaying that to me. I, I tend to think that in, in a lot of cases the client doesn't know what they're doing. If the schedules are served early or even at a termination, they still might not have a have formalized what they're going to do with that building and have an idea what they can do with that building. Uh, it depends where the building is as well. A lot of places, uh, you know, if it's in the centre of London, then it's a different proposition to it being a regional property. All different things could happen to it, depending on the economic climate. And again, that changes along with time. So it depends what, what the markets are doing at the time. That's very true. And I suppose COVID, again, has been a situation which has really shown that how, you know, even if there was an intention at a certain point, those those intentions may completely change if the market completely changes. Um, so, yeah, very neat illustration recently. Um, and another significant point about the protocol, um, and one I'm sure we're going to see argued still going forward, probably particularly in light of COVID, is the clear guidance that the protocol gives as to when parties should look to obtain a section 18 valuation from the cases I've seen that's generally meant that tenants are able to put more pressure on landlords to provide those valuations where the works haven't been carried out um Sara is that your experience as well and do you think that the sort of leaning towards section 18 valuations in those circumstances has helped to resolve dilapidations claims I think the biggest problem we've got about section 18 or diminution valuations is that people don't really understand them um, they tend to use them as well. The Section 18 says this, and therefore that's what we should claim, whereas actually they're a cap. Um, and that has a, a different impact on the claim. Um, we, we, when we're representing tenants, we do our own sort of supersession argument as we go through the claim and take things out that we think would be superseded by the landlords in various scenarios. Uh, I think that it would be useful if a landlord surveyor did that, not necessarily on the original claim, which is what they're supposed to do if they know their client's intentions, but certainly later down the line so we can have a more constructive discussion. I think keeping everything in the claim for a longer period of time when everybody knows that, um, you know, 1980s lavatories are going to be pulled out and refurbished is, is just a silly way forward and is not productive at all. I think the cost of valuations um, hinders a lot of people doing it. So I think that stops a lot of landlords. I think for a small and medium sized claim, it's it's just too expensive. Yeah, I think that is a problem. I mean, Richard, what do you think? Do you find the additional guidance in the protocol on these valuations is helpful when you're negotiating dilapsed claims? Or do you think there is a problem when it comes to the costs of them? Yes, I, I, I would totally agree with Sarah that the, the cost is prohibitive and there are relatively few valuers who understand what a, a Section 18 value is, let alone how to do one. Um, and it's, you know, particularly for small claims, it's just prohibitive and your costs can be totally disproportionate by the time you've prepared the, the schedule, got a Section 18 uh, value in to do, to do your Section 18 valuation. It really 
is, is out of proportion to the value of the claim. Fine for, for big claims, um, but certainly I, I think it would almost be helpful if there could be uh, some sort of price limit put in to which this applies. Yeah, that might work. I mean, it would certainly fit with the kind of court's overall approach, you know, when it comes to proportionality and they're always working on that and trying to make, you know, disclosure and things like that more proportionate. So that would that would make sense, wouldn't it? I think one of the interesting points here, though, is I do think that it is important to get evaluation done as early on as necessary if the uh, landlord is not going to do any work. Um, particularly for big claims. And I think that has been brought forward and is very useful on bigger claims. Yeah, I definitely see that. And I think you're right. I think it does kind of enable you to say to landlord clients, look, you know, if you're serious about pursuing this claim, you're going to have to get a Section 18 valuation because otherwise the tenant's just going to keep saying, where's your Section 18? Where's your Section 18? You're not doing the work. Where's your Section 18? And it just gets very tedious. I think there's still a lot of misunderstanding as to what falls within Section 18 and what falls outside of it. Um, so I've got a, a very large dilapidations claim at the moment where the, 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 uh, the tenant has said to me, well, um, what about all these alterations and reinstatement? Where's your Section 18 valuation? Um, you know, and I've you know, politely reminded them that actually that sits outside of Section 18. So I, I think there is still quite an education process uh, to be gone through. And also for surveyors to actually think when they're preparing the schedule, you know, what breach of the lease are we actually looking at? Are we looking at an item of disrepair? Are we looking at decoration? Or are we looking at reinstatement? Uh, and careful selection of the clauses can have a very big impact on the claim under these different heads. It can, Richard. And I think another point, which I, I think you've previously made, not on this podcast, but the other point that I thought was interesting that you made was, look, if you've got two valuers doing valuations in different ways, they're very different values. And I'm not really sure how we square that circle either, because you've just then got another interested party for both sides at loggerheads, as well as the surveyors and the clients. So I, I, I don't know how productive it is, even in big claims, when they come at it from a different angle. And really the only one who's going to make a decision on that is a judge. And you're not, you really, that's not really where you want to end up. No, it's not. And judges have been, you know, we've had a few instances lately where expert evidence has come under quite severe criticism, actually, for, you know, not really assisting the court sufficiently. You're right. No, no one wants to be in that boat. <laughs> um, and one point I think also worth making here is the fact that the protocol does make it clear that complying with its substance is the key rather than worrying about minor or technical shortcomings. Um, do you find that parties surveyors are generally able to find a sensible way of negotiating dilapidations claims according to the level of claim you're dealing with? And do you think that has improved perhaps under the protocol? Totally comes down to the individual and, and who you're dealing with uh, and also the instructions that they've, they've been given. There, there are obviously some surveyors regrettably that will argue uh, to the cows come home on the, the smallest point. Others will take a much sort of broader view and want to get to a settlement in a reasonable period of time um, as it benefits both parties. I agree with that. I, I think that a good 90% of people that I come across and I act against individually and as my team definitely deal with it in the spirit that it's meant to be dealt with and we move things forward. I think 
one of the problems that we all face as dilapidation surveyors is the collection of evidence, whether it be landlord or tenant. Um, and that is, you know, the deep dive into the usually the ME services, which um, <laughs> can't be done until the tenants left. And then there's argument about whether, you know, how much to what extent everybody's going into the detail. Uh, but it does mean, again, more parties getting involved. Um, and I think that that is, is an issue and that causes time delay and it's important that clients understand um, whether you're acting for the tenant or the landlord that both parties both sides have to deep dive into that detail to really see which is applicable under the lease clauses and what's not applicable under the lease clauses even to the extent that some of the ME might be covered under the service charge and you didn't want to double pay for it, et cetera etc cetera. Um, so I think that's really important and, and it all takes time so it's just about how that's the client's expectations are managed on the the deep dive on the on the detail of a claim and sometimes there's more detail required yeah dilapidations claims have never you know bringing them to an end has never been a, a quick process has it and i i think you know I, I feel as if it's a bit quicker under the protocol but uh it's still not a it's not an overnight job is it but hopefully our listeners have now got a much uh, better understanding as to why that might be so um that's very helpful and perhaps before we finish up um I, I can ask each of you whether there's anything you would change about the protocol, whether there's anything that where you think actually that little tweak would be helpful. I mean, I think it, it is good to have the guidance and to form the structure around which the dilapidations negotiations take place. So if anything, I would be in favour of actually it being a little bit more prescriptive. So there's not this room for discussion about what the protocol says and what it, what it doesn't say. Um, and, and I think you know, the, the discussions we've had about whether the 56 days is right, whether the 28 days is right, I think it just by keeping those and, and maybe even tightening a little bit more, in, not in terms of the period of time, but in terms of the requirements of the protocol, can only um, benefit the settlement because otherwise some suppliers will aggressively seek to argue about the protocol itself. And for me, I think it would be really useful. Um... And it would also help to educate, I think, although I haven't done it in practice, to have an extra column. And that extra column should be for the likely things that fall away in the claim. So the, the, the terminal schedule is completed as a contractual claim, so it includes everything. And then the landlord surveyor would put in the things that would survive the claim, possibly what his landlord, his client's going to do to the building. So it would be a, a sort of a quasi supersession column. And then that could be the second part of the claim. However, I appreciate that the landlord may it may be a, a mirror image of the contractual claim if there's there's no difference. But certainly, as the tenant, I if we could then look at that and and with the understanding that on a without prejudice basis, they're likely to do the refurbishment of the reception, the lavatories, the kitchen area, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and I think that's a good way of of stepping it forward quickly, right from the outset if that's the intentions of the landlord. Yeah, I can see that. Well, some good suggestions there. So thank you very much. Um, and, and thank you both for bringing the dilapidations protocol to life a bit and explain how it works in practice. I think it's fair to say that the conduct of dilapidations negotiations has improved noticeably since I first became a solicitor. And there's no doubt the protocol has had a role in this, thanks to the hard work of the Property Litigation Association and one fiery property litigator in particular who knows who she is. 
It's also worth saying, I think the training in this area via the RICS Dilapidations Forum has probably also made a real difference. Any listeners who deal with dilapidations claims and who aren't yet a member of that forum, I highly recommend joining and attending their conferences. In the meantime, thank you very much to you both, Richard and Sarah, and to you, our listeners, for joining us today. And we look forward to sharing more property law knowledge with you soon. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast.